Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're so excited to be here. We're here. I'm queer. Get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Okay. <laughs> we are The Horrors, the podcast where we talk about women in horror. Welcome. This is ASMR knowledge. Oh my god, no, it's not. <laughs> so the movie that we're talking about today is Black Christmas, which is not to be mistaken with the 1974 original or the 2006 remake, but instead the 2019 reboot or revamp, whatever you call it, which is essentially about a bunch of sorority girls getting killed around holiday break. Yeah, spot on. Let's talk about the energy that surrounds a college campus right before people leave for break. Because you and I went to college together. Yes. And there's always just such a both exasperated yet sentimental energy that comes with your finals being done, but then waiting for mommy and daddy to pick you up Mm. on the ground floor of the dorm. It's chaos, but in like a very sort of unhinged sort of way. It feels like you're in a daze because you're so mentally and emotionally exhausted, but then you're getting a gut punch again because the only people that got you through that and that you can stand, you're not going to see for like a month and a half, which really isn't that long, but like it felt like a really long time. Well, where we it? went to school, they had an actual long winter break. A lot of other schools have maybe, I don't know, like three weeks, three weeks, but ours was longer than that. So it really did feel like a whole eternity at times. Yeah. By like the week after New Year's, we still had three more weeks of break <laughs> to go. And we were so ready to get out of the, our parents' house and come back. But yeah, I think that's something this movie did fairly well is encapsulating the energy of just being so done with the semester and being ready to like reach toward more lighthearted things. But then that just gets stopped by these beings that are after these sorority girls. So the movie takes place at the fictional Hawthorne College, where the founder is a fictional Calvin Hawthorne. Hawthorne. We open, I forget even how the movie fucking opens. It opens, I think, kind of in this little montage of a couple cloaked bros at some sort of fraternity ceremony. They are chanting something. They are chanting fraternitas fraternitas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the Latin. I think it's fraternitas. Fratern- fraternitas. I just want to say it like I'm ordering something at Chipotle. <laughs> fraternitas fractrum um, with a side of guac. <laughs> but you get the picture. And shortly after that montage, there's the sound of some distant women screaming. And then we kind of cut to a little potluck dinner at a sorority house. I think it's a potluck and they're kind of exchanging some winter gifts before all of the girls go home to break. Yes, there is some choice acting between a girl named Una and a girl named Lindsay. Lindsay is deciding to go home and missing the potluck dinner, but Una was her secret Santa. So they're on the phone and she's like, listen, you know, my mom wants me to come back early. I just have to go to the train station or whatever. So she's walking through campus. Lindsay hangs up with Una And Lindsay is walking down the street when she gets a yip yap notification. My God. And I'm assuming that this is supposed to be like yik yak. Tell us what yik yak is for all the youngins out there. I don't even know if this is still around. 
I don't think so. But when Shay and I were in college, there was something called Yik Yak, which was basically like everybody in a certain radius, which is kind of type messages to the masses anonymously. And if you were in a certain vicinity, you could see these messages and you could upvote them or downvote them. And they would only be available, I think, for a certain amount of time. I think there was only ever a certain amount available on the feed and then they would just be phased out. Yeah, so it was always within like a very short mile radius, like five mile radius and whatnot. And it essentially was like an anonymous Twitter. There was no accounts. There was no sign up. There was no identity verification. You could just kind of throw a message out there into the void completely anonymously. And obviously that led to a lot of like not good stuff. I just remember everyone yik yakking about like hooking up with their RAs. Or, like, wanting to hook up with their RAs. I'm pretty sure there was some sort of, like, threat of violence against the campus, which made it outlawed. It wasn't the best, because when people can say things without accountability, it's not the best. But in this version, in this movie, Yip Yap, (laughs) you can direct message people in your vicinity, which seems creepy, and it is. Mm -hmm. So, Lindsay receives a message from the Yip Yap saying something like, what does a Christmas ham and a sorority girl have in common? They both squeal before they die. Which, I mean, ew. (laughs) I would cry. Yeah, obviously very intimidating, very scary. There's a fake out where there's a guy who's walking behind Lindsay, who is looking at his phone, who we think is sending the messages, but he ends up crossing the street at one point, and she comes face to face with a cloaked, masked being who kind of chases her around the front yard a little bit. She runs to a neighbor's house. The neighbor opens the door and it's the masked guy. He seems to be almost like teleporting. And Lindsay is attacked in the front lawn. The assailant stabs her with an icicle and she is killed. But what I found was interesting, while Lindsay was struggling, she was making a snow angel in the Mm. snow with her arms and then it goes from that so she's killed very symbolically there's a snow angel in the snow it's obviously like a a pretty stunning image but then when the guy goes to drag her away he drags her body down and her body is being outlined in the snow guess what it looks like a dick a dick oh my gosh Yes, these two angel wings turn to balls real quickly. Yeah, because she like her arms like fan up as her body is being. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I didn't even notice. Right on cue with the hidden dick. There's always a dick. Yeah, and that actually makes a lot of sense because of the rest of the movie. Yes, the amount of toxic masculinity. Yeah, that is just pervading. We are back with the toxic masculinity themes. Yeah. Something about Christmas and toxic masculinity. We They're aren't just... even back. We haven't even left the station. We are no. just on a different stop of yes. on the toxic masculinity train. It's it gets wild. <laughs> the toxic masculinity train. If toxic masculinity were a vehicle, would it be a train? I guess. I mean, I, the thing that came to mind it would be like a white van, right? <laughs> but that's not toxic masculinity. That's usually pedophilia yeah well we can come back to this maybe (laughs) (laughs) so after Lindsay perishes oh my god sorry (laughs) what do you want me to say She's a piece of fruit. <laughs> She's not a piece of fruit. What, what <laughs> piece know. of fruit do you know perishes? <laughs> Isn't that how you describe fruit that goes bad? Like, oh, my fruit perished. 
I don't know. Is that not a thing? That's not a thing. No. Like perishables. My perishables. Perishable like just you're... means it's capable of dying. No. Yes, he says. But like you might call things that spoil like, oh, these are my perishables. Like your cheeses and eggs. I didn't say that she went past her expiration date. No. I said that she perished like somebody I perished know. at war. <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ. Okay. Either way. Superstar. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay is killed. We switch scenes and we are introduced to Riley, who is, I don't want to say our final girl because we there's a lot of them, but she is, I would say, the lens through which we are viewing the film is Riley. She is a member of a sorority <laughs> i didn't write that i tried to write it down well there were a cu- there were a lot of greek letters there were a lot mentioned yes i believe she calls them the muse i think it's mu kappa epsilon i think and you eat there's something i believe that's what it is i'm sure it's fictional i'm sure it's not related to an actual greek letter organization so riley is woken up she- was she having a nightmare isn't she in class no, because Claudette wakes her up. Oh, Claudette. The house cat. The sorority house cat. Wouldn't that be a dream to just have a random cat? We had a apartment cat. Oh, we did have an apartment cat. You and I had a couple different apartment pets. Oh, yeah, because you... Yes, 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 yes. Yes, a cat in the space is awesome. So Claudette the cat wakes Riley up and then somebody whose name I don't know who is the owner of Claudette, rushes into Riley's room and is like, hey, I lost my diva cup and asks Riley for a pad. She gives her a pad. There's like a lot of like period humor. I guess this is supposed to be startling. I don't know. Either way, Riley is going downstairs and she is visiting with some of her other sisters who are also staying on campus over the winter. They're all attending what they call an orphan's dinner. And one of her sorority sisters asks Riley specifically if... That's offensive because I believe Riley's parents are dead, but that doesn't become relevant. Never. It never does. We always think that there's going to be, at least for me, that set up the expectation that there's some sort of person who's after Riley specifically, like Scream style, like Sydney Prescott style, but that doesn't happen. So Riley being like an orphan, I think all it really does is underline her sorority sisters are truly, I guess some of the only family she has. Mm, that's a good point. I also think it pairs with what we learn about her later to say that she's been through some shit. Riley's little's name is Helena. And they're talking about that night there is a performance at the Deke house, which I believe it's Delta Kappa Omicron from what I'm, if I'm reading their letters mm, correctly. Sounds about right. It sounds right. Either way, they're, they call themselves the Deltas or the Deeks. And from what it sounds like, there are other sororities that are boycotting this talent show of sorts. And just from my very limited knowledge of what Greek letter organizations do, I believe there are certain social events where certain groups like have to host socials or have to have these different events that include other Greek letter organizations. There are other sororities that are boycotting going because apparently these guys are up to no good for a multitude of reasons. But Riley gifts Helena this comb that apparently has some level of significance in their like family line as a good luck charm for her performance at this talent show later that night. Yeah. So that's a touching moment between big and little, little and big. And 
After that, Helena seems pretty pleased that she'll have this nice good luck charm and Riley walks off to class. So we follow her down the street. She's walking to class. We get a view of this New England style campus. There's snow on the ground. No Um, color at all. Very bleak for sure. At this point, shortly after she enters, we hear the professor talking. He's reading a quote that says, men bonding together invented culture as a defense against female nature. Right. So he is reading this passage by Dr. Camille Paglia, who Mm -hmm. is a feminist scholar. We get the sense that he's reading it out of context. He kind of asks Riley, even though she doesn't have her hand raised to answer the question, what she thinks the passage is saying. And when she answers, she uses like a he him pronoun, assuming the gender of the writer. And he kind of comes back at her with, well, this writer is a woman and we can't assume that writing has a gender. I think that he's trying to appear that he is this inclusive professor, but really he is still taking this writing out of context and he is still talking about very gendered theory and he kind of uses this moment to make Riley feel foolish for sure in front of all of her peers. But the reason that he is going on this little crusade is because he casually drops in the knowledge, as some of you may know, people are trying to fire me. And he goes off pretty much about how people don't think that he's inclusive enough, even though it's his job to teach the classics as they ought to be taught. And he shared this piece of literature as a way for him to, I guess, excuse himself from the idea that he is teaching works that share one agenda. And I guess when you are looking at classic literature, it is usually by straight, cis, white men who further oppression toward women. And this professor's name, by the way, is Professor Gelson, and he is played by Carrie Elwes, who is Wesley in The Princess Bride, which is hysterical, but he's certainly playing one of the bad guys in this movie, which we can get the sense of very much. Right. I would say him and Riley herself are probably the two most recognizable actors in this movie. The rest of them are kind of largely unknown as of now, or at least in our research up until this point. But Riley is played by Imogen Poots, who, if we're looking at other horror roles, she starred as Amber in Green Room, which is a very terrifying film that Elise started but didn't finish. Yeah, I stopped it right at the part where that guy's arm gets caught in the door and broken, and it's really graphic. So Riley leaves class, and she runs into her friend Chris, who is this activist. She is trying to get people leaving the classroom to sign a petition to get Professor Gelson fired for not having any women, people of color, trans or queer people on his syllabus at all. And we learned shortly after meeting Chris that whereas the identity of the person trying to get Professor Gelson fired was previously a mystery, she obviously is the one heading that campaign. And also she was previously successful in getting the university to remove the bust of the university founder, Calvin Hawthorne. So she has been in this activism game for a while and she is set on making a difference at her campus. And there is obvious history between Professor Gelson and Chris. Apparently, Chris had called Professor Gelson out in class one time, and Professor Gelson yelled at her and berated her in front of other people. So you kind of saw that fear being translated to Riley as well as she is associated with Chris because they are sorority sisters. 
so Chris eventually joins Riley while she is walking to work where she is a barista on campus of sorts. She is joined by her other sorority sister, Marty, and her boyfriend, Nate. Whom they call Smooch. Who she calls Smooch. Who <laughs> Marty called Smooch. That's something I'll say about this movie is there are so many characters and they do not do a good enough job no. letting us know their names. No. I did not so know. hard. I did not know half of these people's names. I didn't know Marty's name until right. Well, I'm not going to give anything away, but I didn't know her name until it was almost too late. Exactly. (laughs) There are just a lot of people to keep track of, and there's not enough dialogue that reminds me who all of these women are. Plus, I can't believe they gave Nate a nickname on top of not even really knowing his name in the first place. Like two names for him. It's a lot. Yeah. You're going to give two names (laughs) to an inconsequential boyfriend character, but... (laughs) Either way, so Riley is at work and Chris is trying to convince Riley to join them at this Deke talent show in the evening. And she's trying to get her to sign the petition as well. And there's dialogue that says like, hey, what happened was like three years ago. You showing up is going to be so much braver because In that scene, there is a brother of that fraternity that comes in and kind of threatens Riley. He comes in, asks for a coffee, and is like, you know what you said about Brian? He never would have done, right? Like, we all know that you're lying or whatever like that. And Chris throws coffee in his face and he leaves and whatnot. But he was essentially just there to deliver the message of, hey, Brian is going to be at this talent party tonight so maybe you want to think twice about showing up right this is also where we meet landon landon who seems like a very nice boy i don't know how else to describe him yeah he's like a he seems like a quiet nice boy nerdy nerdy, but like in an endearing way he's interested in riley we kind of get the sense that he frequents the coffee shop and there's one point where chris is you know trying to get riley to sign the petition against professor gelson and he offers i'll sign the petition i was in that class actually when he said those fucked up things to you it's messed up like i'll sign it he becomes a part of the conversation even though he's quiet you can see sort of making some kind of effort to connect with riley and her friends on some level So it kind of cuts to that evening where they're all at the DKO house. So from what we're understanding, Riley has helped choreograph a performance that Chris, Marty, Jesse, and Helena, who are all sorority sisters with Riley, are going to do a dance very akin to the Mean Girls dance. Mm -hmm. They all are kind of dressed in the skimpy Santa costumes, and they're getting ready, but no one can find Helena. So Riley decides, I'm going to go look for her. She's kind of walking around the fraternity house, and she notices some sort of chanting or noise coming from one of the rooms. So she peers in the door and she sees that there's some sort of ceremony going on. There's a bunch of hooded guys sort of standing around and she sees that there's a bust, the bust that was previously removed of Calvin. I keep wanting to say Calvin Coolidge. Wasn't he one of the presidents of the United States? Sure. I don't know. I keep thinking of Calvin Harris because it's (laughs) Calvin Hawthorne. So this just in, yes, Calvin Coolidge was the 30th (laughs) United States president. Okay, but this is Calvin Hawthorne. I'm just going to start saying different Calvins every time we talk about the (laughs) book. Of Calvin, I don't know any other Calvins. So we see the bus of Calvin Hawthorne. And um, 
he has some weird like black tears coming out of his eyes and the men are kind of chanting around this bust and it's sort of a troubling scene right especially the black tears and as riley pulls away from the door she notices she gets some kind of gunk on her fingers and this gunk is being put on the foreheads of the new oh, yes. pledges of the new initiates very ash wednesday reminiscent but a lot more demonic oh yes So she goes looking for Helena. She hears Helena making out with a guy named Phil. And Phil was the guy who came into the cafe and kind of teased Riley that Brian was going to be back in town. So Riley's kind of looking through the open door and seeing Phil and Helena making out. And Helena is obviously very intoxicated and uncomfortable. So Riley inserts herself into the situation and asks Helena, hey, the girls are looking for you for the performance. We have to go. Phil is being like, we're a little busy here. Riley looks at Helena's like, do you want me to leave? And she shakes her head no. And Phil spouts out some disgusting dialogue of like, you whores are all teases. Yeah, basically. You bitches are all the same. And you can tell that Phil kind of has it out for Riley now, especially because he didn't get his dick wet, whatever. So by the time Riley gets Helena back to the room where all the other girls are preparing for the performance, she has Helena sort of leaning on her. Helena's clearly very intoxicated. As mentioned, she seems to be getting sick. Yeah, so Riley sends Helena home in an Uber and brings back her costume to the rest of the girls and said, hey, Helena got food poisoning, kind of covers for her, doesn't really tell everyone what happened. And they all say, hey, Riley, you're in the dance number now. Yeah, you have to do it. You know the choreography, you know the words, like you have to do it, you have to do it. And Riley is obviously very much against that, especially because we have found out that Brian, her rapist, is going to be in the audience. So she's pretty like staunchly against that idea. But Chris, her friend, is really being a little and I thought it was a little pushy. Yeah, I didn't like that. I, I didn't, didn't like, like this, this. You could tell that Chris is really trying to be empowering to Riley. She's saying things along the lines of Nobody believed you three years ago. Wouldn't it be so good to just go back and take your power back from him and get in front of all of these people? She says, you used to be a fighter. It's time to be a fighter again. But like, it's a dance number. Come on. Like, this isn't really like that big of a deal. No, it's really (laughs) not. Like, it's not like she's testifying against Brian in court. She is doing a rendition of Up on the Rooftop in a (laughs) short skirt. Like, Chris, while well-intentioned, is trying to get across that, like, you can take your agency back by getting up in front of him and showing that you're not afraid of him anymore. But when the dance number does go on... Riley locks eyes with Brian and kind of freezes on stage. There is sort of a moment where the other three girls notice, oh shit, Riley's freezing, which is like, oh, she fucking like said she was uncomfortable. And you peer pressured her up there. Like, of course that's going to happen. And even Chris like tries again to do this like tough love shit and comes up behind her and is like, now it's time to rebuild yourself, bitch. It's like, come on, like you guys are singing a song at a party. Like it's like, so anyway, the girls obviously sense this and so then chris kind of comes up after she says that comment she starts singing too and then the other two start singing as well and then eventually riley kind of starts singing and then we realize that the song is a parody of up on the rooftop and it's really a song about fraternity brothers taking advantage of sorority women specifically and sort of trying to seduce them and forcing them into having sex with them and often the women finding themselves in positions where they had been sexually assaulted and and having to live with that so 
you know, the room goes wild. The boys are booing, but the girls are cheering. I wrote the performance was pretty baller. I mean, after the awkward part. Yeah, the beginning, you could tell it's trying to be a little bit of a tease where they're like up in the fraternity house and talking about like what's happening under the mistletoe. But yes, again, it gets a more grim where Riley is looking Brian right in the face and being like, everyone knows just what you did and and things of that nature. It gets very expository. But what I found was interesting too was this was Riley's way of kind of getting back at him, whether she knew it or not, whether she knew that she was going to be here or not, because the lyrics were not ad-libbed for Riley's sake in the moment. The choreography and the song was planned from the beginning because we had said earlier that there were other sororities that were not going to this they were boycotting the talent show because this fraternity has a reputation for taking advantage and assaulting and raping women so because they were forced to participate they did so in a way that called out how really terrible these guys were treating i guess that's a good point yeah riley was very much a part of that from the beginning she always was gonna kind of stick it to him But I guess she was just kind of forced to play a more overt role in that, being one of the performers. And I'm just going to say this as a blanket statement. Obviously, there is a lot of good that come out of people being in sororities and fraternities and otherwise Greek letter organizations. I don't think it's without its faults, but I would be remiss to say that the movie really is operating off stereotypical representations in being that these men are largely dismissive and abusive of women and the women are kind of vapid and not always comforting of one another and a little shamey of one another. So this is really just showing a very small representation or a very small sliver of a stereotype of the realities of a lot of Greek life. Again, it's not without its faults. It's not without its criticisms. But I would just be remiss to say that this is obviously operating a lot off of harmful stereotypes and representations of just college students in general, I would say. So going off of that kind of brings us back to Landon, actually, who is actually our only character, our only, I guess I should say, guy in the movie who is seeming to be a good guy. <laughs> um, he isn't in a fraternity, I believe. I think maybe he was considering pledging. He was at the talent show, so he did see the performance. He was the sound guy. Oh, okay, so that's why. So after the number is over, Riley and the girls leave the stage. You can see Riley is sort of excited about the performance, about you know the cheers from the audience. So it is an empowering moment to see her so joyful about how it went. Then she leaves, Landon follows. But on her way out, she oh, says yeah. something really important. So... The performance was being filmed by, I believe, Smoosh or oh yeah, Smoosh Nate or Marty's boyfriend. So as Riley's running out, she says to the point where the camera hears her, "That'll make Brian Huntley think twice before he rapes another girl." Yeah, something along or those lines something for sure. along those. But lines. she names him like full name. But I don't think we realize it's being filmed at that time. Well, maybe we do. She doesn't, at least. Okay, and then that ends up coming into play later. So then that brings us back to Landon. He follows the girls out. He says, hey, Riley, you know, that was really good. It's a great performance. Where are you guys going? And then he ends up kind of walking with them 
as this is going on, we're kind of getting shots, like jump shots back to the house where we see Helena vomiting some more. She's in her room, obviously by herself because her sisters are out at the talent show. And we're kind of jumping back and forth between Landon and Riley versus what's going on with Helena at the house. So Landon and Riley are talking. They're flirting. Yeah, it's cute. Definitely some chemistry. But of course, you know, at this point in the film, it's like, is Landon a good guy or is he some kind of sneaky snake? Yeah, he's definitely a little bit of a red herring. Mm -hmm. But I will say throughout, he is always asking like comforting questions. So, for example, Chris is trying to be a wing woman Mm. and turns around and is like, hey, Riley, did you invite Landon to the orphan's dinner tomorrow night? And they explain what it is. And Chris invites him and he turns to Riley and is like, would you like it if I came? Like just very respectful, really just double checking that it's okay. And points for communication. Exactly. As Landon and Riley are hitting it off, we kind of cut back to Helena and she gets a notification from Calvin Hawthorne on Yip Yap. And it says, our time is near. This is after she comes back from the bathroom, right? When she reads this, a face appears sort of like behind her in like the door area. And then the scene cuts. Yes. So then the next morning, Riley wakes up. She was just having a nightmare of some flashbacks of the assault of which happened between her and Brian. It was like three years prior. I don't know if we said that, but just to give like timing. Right. No, Elise is right. There are some old wounds that are still poking to the surface through her dreams. So she wakes up and One of her sorority sisters comes in the room. Her sorority sister was asking if she can watch her cat over the break. She says yes. And it's just like, hey, you know, by the way, I heard what you did last night. That's really awesome. And she says, you won. Like, don't you feel good that you won? Meaning that she kind of triumphed over Brian. But I thought that that was some like pretty strong irony after her waking up from that nightmare where she's obviously still so very affected. Mm hmm. Riley's like, yes, I'll feed your cat. I'll watch your cat, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And then the scene cuts away. She goes to look for for Helena Helena. because Lindsay at this point has officially been reported missing. And Lindsay is not in their sorority. She's in another sorority. But people are asking around like, hey, have you seen her? Yeah. And I believe Riley goes out to get a tree with her other sisters. And that's when she gets a call from Helena's mom, who is like, have you seen Helena? She's not home yet. I don't know what's going on. So while the other girls are out getting the tree and then eventually Riley decides to look for Helena, we see that sorority sister who owns Claudette the cat looking around the house for Claudette. She's trying to, you know, see where she is, I guess, to say her goodbyes before she leaves. And ultimately, we see her kind of get approached from behind by that familiar masked hooded figure and strangled with christmas lights very festive always very festive <laughs> we got we gotta love a festive kill so that's another one down so we'll cut back to the scene where the others are out looking for their christmas tree for their orphans dinner riley gets a notification from yip yap and right after she gets some kind of again ominous message that's when she gets the anonymous call with a distorted talking which turns out to be helena's mom so it's kind of again one of those kind of gut-wrenching moments where you think oh my gosh is this a creepy person on the other side but it turns out to be helena's mom so riley gets another yip yap it says can't wait to find out if you'll put up a fight that's right little girl we've got you in our sight (laughs) shay goes calvin likes to rhyme Because it really is like up on the housetop. It's like very like. It's very sing-songy. Yes. And I don't know if the other ones were like that. Were they? Because if they were, I didn't notice. 
but no, this the first one, one totally was... is. They're all like that. Oh no, my no, god! No, 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 no. The first one was about like what do the sorority girl and a pig have in common? Like they did. Oh, it like it a wasn't, joke. It was a joke. But it's very yeah. It has a very juvenile punchline, sing songy back and forth. So then you're wondering like who is writing these? Right. And Riley is freaked, and she tries to persuade the others. You guys, we should really go to the police. We should really go to public safety. They're not really into the idea. Smoosh or smoochy or mushy um nate yeah i should just call him nate so he's like you guys like sorry i got this my guy voice you know you guys it could have been a delay there's snow on the ground like we can't freak out basically kind of trying to de-escalate the situation but we can also see nate he's kind of getting irritable he's acting very strange i don't really know if anything ever kind of comes into fruition about that but they didn't give him enough character development no. in the beginning to really give us a baseline of what he was like. But I will say that he went to a performance where he watched his girlfriend dance in a skimpy outfit in front of other fraternity men and was very supportive of it. I would say, ladies, that's the bottom line. That's the floor in terms of like, that should be fine. You can do whatever the fuck you want, no matter who you're dating. Anyway, that's giving us enough of an indication that their relationship is pretty secure and he's just really supportive of her and mm-hmm. things of that nature. But Elise is right. Like, as time is going on, he is saying that he's having these headaches and is becoming progressively more and more combative with Marty. So Riley's finally like, fine, I'm going to go by myself to public safety. So when she's walking away, we see that on the balcony, the cat mom is dead. Yeah, really gruesome. So on the way to public safety, she runs into Landon. She asks him if he's been messaging her, like wondering if he was the one that sent the anonymous yip-yap messages, but he says no. After she runs into him, she gets to public safety and basically says, hey, this is what's going on. This girl is missing and now my friend is missing. Here are the messages I've been getting. They shut her down right away. They mention how the first yip yap message she responded to asking, is this Landon? So the officer is like, are you sure it's not the guy you just met the other night messaging you? Like, are you sure? Are you sure? She's like, I just have a feeling something is not right. He comes back with, you need more than feelings in this business. But then eventually the officer does soften, but it is still after a pretty stereotypically dismissive role that he plays. She also does bring up that Brian Huntley is in town and that she has probable cause to be afraid of him. And this is another clue, or I don't know if it's sloppy writing or if it was meant to be a hint for later, but he's saying like, oh, like you trust this Landon guy you met the other night, but you don't trust Huntley. And he calls him by his last name like he knows him. You know, that's so interesting. I mean, it's supporting what had been inferred earlier that Brian Huntley had enough people in his corner to keep him out of trouble, despite Riley coming forward with the rape in the first place. Exactly. And it's presumed that with whatever happened or when Riley tried to report or try to speak out about what happened to Brian, she probably would have had to go to public safety. And those were the people that dismissed her. So again, he must be familiar, at least with this allegation at the very least. But yes, eventually Riley says enough where he takes her to the DKO house because that was the last place that Riley saw Helena. We cut to the next scene. Officer knocks on the door like once. He says, no one's here. It's dark, whatever. So he says, I'm leaving. 
So she stays at the house and we kind of see her lurking around a little bit. She gets out her phone. She dials Helena's number and you can barely hear a phone ringing from inside of the house. But as we're sort of like caught listening to this phone, a hand grabs Riley's shoulder and it's kind of this jump scare moment where we turn around and we see Professor Gelson standing behind her. And he's like, hey, and in sort of the moment of being fearful, she kind of bumps into him a little bit and he drops all of his papers that he was carrying. So she kneels down to help him pick it up. You know, it's kind of this really awkward encounter. What the hell? And she sees that there is a list that he had in his possession with all the sororities listed and then all of the sisters within the sororities listed as well. It's kind of eerie. And we paused the movie and we were just looking and trying to figure out what the names had in common. And from what we could tell, the girls that were listed under each sorority were the girls who signed the petition to fire Professor Gelson. And we can kind of put that together because of that scene in the coffee shop where we saw them sign the petition. We heard Chris heading that up. And also under the other sorority, we saw the name Lindsay and we saw Una and those names that we were introduced to that seemed pretty inconsequential in the beginning, but kind of come back again here on this list. Gelson asks why she's lurking around the house. She said that she left her comb at the house at a party the previous evening, wants to go find it. And turns out Professor Gelson has a key to the fraternity house because I think he's, I guess, an alumni or an elder brother. I'm not exactly sure. But you can tell that he is at least a member of this fraternity. And we keep seeing that portrait inside the house that looks eerily like a young Professor Gelson. But while he is like searching for the correct key to open the door, This is where he reveals that he has seen the video and there has been over 50,000 views of the video of their performance last night. He has a distaste for it. He kind of threatens legal repercussions because there's some like level of slander or whatever. And he even says, you know, many sacrifices have been made to keep our traditions alive. It's a shame that people want to come along and critique What is just boys being like, well, you know. Oh, icky. So, of course, this makes Riley upset. She doesn't even go inside the house. She turns right around and she goes right back to her sorority house and she confronts Chris. And she kind of comes in the house and she accuses Chris of being unfeeling, insensitive. I can't believe you posted this. Did you watch the whole thing? Because that's when we see that a part of the post is that ending portion where Riley names Brian Huntley by name, saying that'll teach him to rape another girl. Chris seems kind of surprised, didn't watch the whole video, didn't expect it. But she kind of comes back at Riley again with that same sort of you need to be a fighter rhetoric. Like it's not a big deal. Like we're trying to make a splash. Like we're trying to get the point across. But there's a divide there about is Chris being sensitive to Riley's feelings? No, she's not. And Chris is, again, fighting, being like, this is how you make change happen. You know, we have tangible things that are making them shake, like this might change their ways, things of that nature. And Riley really shoots back with, not everybody can be like you, Chris. Some people just want to, and then Chris fires back, what, just disappear like you have? Oh, my God. Like, (laughs) which is really just, again, unfairly critiquing the way that Riley has processed her trauma. Mm -hmm. Agreed. But during this, Jessie, who was one of the girls that was in the performance, you can tell she's like younger. She's like an underling. She's <laughs> kind of being very like submissive to what all the other girls want. She's like, listen, when y'all fight, you freak me out. I'm going to go upstairs and get some Christmas lights. So she disappears to the attic. She must be a Pisces. She must be. 
<laughs> or a cancer or something. And also when Jesse leaves the room is when we have that weird scene with Nate. And then there's a, a fight between the two of them where contrasting with what we've seen before from Nate, where he's very supportive. He's very into the statements that the girls are making. He seemed a very integral part of that song and dance number. Now we see him accusing the girls of overgeneralizing the fraternity brothers and being rude and being prejudiced and being all of these things. And he's really sort of taking this like strange stance and Marty is confused. And then, you know, there's kind of a blowout and he leaves. It's a not all men fight, essentially. Nate starts being like, listen, I know that one dude did something bad, but you can't lump me in with them. I've never done anything. You're just anti-man. And then that's when Chris comes in. He's like, did you just not all men me? And they're fighting and they're fighting. But this is where, you know, I really appreciate Marty because we don't, again, we don't really have much of a characterization of her, which is one of my critiques of this movie is I wouldn't even say Riley or Chris have a very strong characterization. They have maybe two characteristics that withhold their entire characterization. So for example, Riley is a survivor and an orphan. Okay. And then we have Chris who is an activist Okay. Mm. And then we have Marty, who has a boyfriend. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then we have Jesse, who's submissive. Okay. Nate, or Smoosh, whatever, is a boyfriend. Okay. Like, in a film, a film guy. Brian and Phil are rapists, and Landon's a nice guy. Like, there's nothing mm-hmm. that brings substance to any of these characters. So when you try to have them fracture and fight with each other it becomes very flat but something i did like about marty here is she did not go into i'm gonna defend my boyfriend territory she goes into you are not going to talk this way to me and my friends you're Mm. gonna get the fuck out right now yeah that was really good i think that was a, a strong reaction to have because also like yeah what the fuck as the three of them are standing in the foyer area, having just kicked Nate out, two of them get messages. So Marty and Chris both get weird messages where the anonymous person, Yip Yap, Yip Yap, says something to them. And this is right after we get a sequence where we follow Jesse in the attic and she's mm-hmm. looking for Christmas lights scene that it's pretty predictable where she plugs in the one string of lights. It doesn't work, puts it back, gets the other string of lights. And the whole time I was wondering if she was going to find a dead body first, but she ends up getting strangled by the string of lights that she just found worked by a masked hooded figure in the attic. Right. So downstairs, as they are reading these messages, you see a light get blown out. And then another thing comes flying through the window and right through Marty's leg. And they are getting attacked by a harpoon. It's like, at first I thought it was a harpoon because, you know, I'm zero to 100 real quick. I was like, that's got, it's got to be harpoon. It's got to be harpoon. They follow me. But I think it was just like an arrow. It's just a bow and arrow. Either way, there's a scuffle. A lot of the girls drop their phones for, I don't want to say for some reason, but like in the scuffle of them trying to like help Marty, they hide in their pantry somewhere. They hide somewhere, but they lose their phones in the process. And then that's when they realize... Oh, shit. A, we need a phone to call for help. And B, Jesse is in the attic by herself. So the plan they hatch is Riley needs to go downstairs and get her phone. Shortly after she leaves is when Chris and Marty are like, oh, shit, Jesse. Obviously, Marty's hurt. So Chris goes into the attic to find Jesse. And shortly after she gets to the attic, she finds Jesse's dead body. And this is a scene that was present in all three of the Black Christmas movies because I didn't watch the other two Black Christmas movies, but I watched the Kill Count videos as suggested to me by Shay. 
I often will watch those if I want a preview of the scary parts of a movie, just so I'm not frightened. But this scene of a slow shot, finding a dead body in the attic, sitting in a chair, cheating towards the window is present in all three movies. And in this case, Jessie is our girl who is found bound with the lights in the attic. So meanwhile, Riley is walking around downstairs. She is holding a broken broom handle that I guess is a little pointy, which I thought was a little funny because... I'm like, oh, are you trying to call her like a witch for going against the patriarchy? Going oh. back to our Puritan episode. Oh, didn't even, huh. Or are you trying to like nail in some expectation of domesticness? Interesting. Like, why is that your weapon? I love that because, oh my God, like that's so interesting because I never, I really, I'm not used to thinking about why that weapon. So it's always interesting when you bring up those questions because I'm still getting used to asking them. Riley's poking around downstairs and she looks up from behind the couch and Nate is standing there and he doesn't really know what's going on, but he's very apologetic. He's trying to be like, listen, I just want to talk to Marty. I don't want to fight with her. I don't know what I was thinking. He's very different from where we last saw him. He seems more like we would have imagined him to be in a breakup at the beginning of the movie. Right. Back to his very sensitive salvage. And then he gets a migraine that comes on very suddenly. There is this distorted sound in the background. Screeching. And then he like doubles back up and like looks at Riley very like threateningly. And he's like, where's Marty? And Riley senses that something's up. She's just like, there's a guy in the house. Like, I don't know where Marty is. We need to figure out that there is a guy in the house. And this is where he becomes a lot more aggressive. And he's like, oh, if there's a guy in the house, I'll fucking kill him. I need to protect my girl. But he literally like turns to the side and gets shot through the chest and dies. Yeah, it's really sudden and really dramatic. Right after that, obviously, marked with the kill of Nate, we know that the killer is back in the room and has spotted Riley. So they start to fight. And it's actually really scary because initially he gets a hold of her, pins her against the wall, cuts her cheeks with his knife and kind of rubs it around almost as if to rouge her cheeks, as if putting like some weird blush on her with the blood from her wounds. And then he like, quote, kisses her through the mask. So he puts you know, his mask against her. And it's very unsettling, right? Very sexual assaulty and physically aggressive. It's really hard to watch because mm-hmm. she is acting as one would expect being a survivor of this level of assault before. She isn't taking on the final girl anger or wrath that we've seen in other movies. She is sobbing. She is terrified. Imogen Poots does amazing, I think, I th- in this. It is a really great, probably, I think, one of the stronger scenes in the movie. It is. And it is just really disgustingly terrifying of just this person. It looks like he's caressing her cheek, but he's like slicing her cheek down oh, and gross. with the blood and again, being pinned against a wall very sexual undertones there eventually he throws her to the ground and is trying to like strangle her he straddles her and tries to strangle her and then she ends up reaching to the side and finds nate's car keys and with the car keys is able to stab him in the neck to get him off of her yeah and thinking about the weapon if we're Mm -hmm. thinking about the weapon now you know that's uh she has her keys in that position like that wolverine position that so many women are familiar with as that self-defense 
position when you're walking at night. So that's what she does. And then she is about to unmask him, but then a second cloaked masked person comes in the room. And I think that's when she starts screaming for Chris and Marty and the other girls or whatever. And that's when they come down and they help her with that one. This is where the inconsistency (laughs) in the lore begins to piss me off in this movie because we are getting the sense that this being is supernatural and we're getting the sense that this being is supernatural in the beginning when Lindsay runs into this guy on the sidewalk, but then he's inside the house. But then Riley is about to unmask this guy on the ground. Then I believe Chris enters the room. She turns around, looks at Chris, then looks down Mm. and then the guy is gone. But she stabbed this dude in the neck, but he wasn't on the ground anymore. Where was he? Exactly. But then, but then he, he appears later. Yes. Huh. So that's where I'm like, is this being supernatural? Are there multiple beings? But then if that's the case, like, and I believe that there's multiple beings because there's a scene later that confirms there's multiple beings. It's not just one. But what's the lore? Like, can they, like, teleport? Can they... <laughs> what is it? Because it's inconsistent. Because... If you're going to say that there's multiple, show us that there's multiple, mm. not like turning one corner and he's there and then turning another corner and he's there like Michael Myers style. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a little unnerving, but I keep writing like teleporting question mark because like I don't know. But either way, this is where I began to realize, even though it is confirmed that Jesse's dead, all four of these girls that performed have very masculine names. Oh, yes, they do. You have Riley, Chris, Marty, and Jesse. Mm-hmm. And Jesse is even spelled in the traditionally masculine style. Same with Marty. It's not spelled with an I at the end. It's spelled with a Y. Mm-hmm. Like from Greece. Marty Maraschino. <laughs> is that who you played? Yes. I knew One it. One time I was Marty Maraschino in Greece. At this point, we're just going to go over all of the... No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but then there's this cool moment where at some point when Marty and Chris and Riley are fighting with that second being or being who has teleported or, you know, still unclear, we see Marty, she kind of sacrifices herself at some point to like distract this being so that Chris and Riley can get away. We see her reaching for the phone after the being sort of is done with her. And we know obviously she's going to try to call 911. And shortly after that scene, we cut to public safety office. That officer we saw before gets a call. There's an attack at blah, 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 blah street. He gets in his car to go and it's kind of like this mad dash. Oh my gosh, we know that the police are coming. What's going on? So, you know, we're cutting back between these fight sequences between Chris and Riley. But it's important to note that when Marty is reaching for the phone, this is where we are presuming that she dies because when she is fighting off this cloaked being, she does get stabbed multiple times trying. Mm -hmm. So finally we get the scene where the public safety officer pulls up outside, which is like, he also shows up by himself, which I don't believe that public safety would get a call like that and just like send the regular public safety officer. So he busts inside and we see he's at a different sorority house. Yeah, you see Una Uh stabbing another being while another two girls are holding down another being. But when the door busts open, another being, I guess, comes behind the public safety officer and kills him right away. But you're seeing that these cloaked, masked 
beings who, I mean, at this point are inextricably tied to the fraternity. Yeah. Like the cloaks are the same color, like that we saw in that like scene when Riley was looking for Helena. Yeah. Like you could tell that it's these boys are responsible, even though they're all masked. And this is confirmed when at the same time that you're seeing that this other sorority is getting attacked. Chris and Riley are able to unmask a guy that they kill in their kitchen and unmask him. And Riley recognizes him as a pledge that she saw get initiated the same night of the talent show. So at this point in the sorority that we're the most familiar with, Chris and Riley are the only ones left. They make it to their car and leave. And Riley tells Chris her theory that the power for these attacks is coming from the bust of Calvin Coolidge. No, just kidding. Of Isn't Calvin Harris. funny that the of- power... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the power comes from the what? Isn't it funny <laughs> that the power is coming from the bust? <gasps> oh. For <laughs> the bust? The bust? That's very interesting. I had a couple puns about the bust in my notes, which we can get to later. Oh. Well, just one, really. So Riley's like, yo, I saw this stuff coming from the eyes of Calvin Hawthorne. The bust, it was pretty wild. I'm pretty sure that's where the power is coming from. La la la. I wrote Chris doesn't want to help. I mean, I think she's shocked. And there's a scene where Riley sort of comes at her and is like, you know, you told me to be active. You told me to be a fighter. Now you're not being a fighter. But also like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like people handle trauma differently. But isn't that such it a is, good... It is the same thing that Chris was dealing out to her earlier in the movie. And now here's Riley. She's dishing it right back. So I'm sure Chris hopefully at least had a come to Jesus moment where she was like, oh, shit. And by the way, Chris is played by Elise Shannon, which <laughs> is literally wild and crazy because my name is Elise and Shay's name is Shannon. Yeah. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, it's our it's names. names. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. I enjoyed her a lot. I enjoyed her performance a lot. I did as well. She was certainly believable, even though, like you said, we don't really see her characterized too much, which is also why I think that kind of exchange in the car is hard to really understand the full gravity of or understand the intention behind it. So Riley GTFOs the car because she's like, fuck you, you're not going to help me. She arms herself with a pink shovel Mm -hmm. that she took from the house and she starts just walking down the street where she runs into Landon. I thought this was kind of fucking stupid. But I mean, important to the plot, but also like Landon, why are you always in the street showing up places where Riley is? I mean, I get that your campus is small, (laughs) but I mean, how many times can you run into somebody in like a 24 hour period? He's carrying a poinsettia. Oh, yeah. And he's on the way because the Orphan's Dinner is supposed to be you that love evening. love Landon. I think... <laughs> I think Landon is trying his best. He's refreshing. I guess by the end of the movie, when you realize that he's not bad at all, it's nice. But I was pretty on edge the whole time. It took me a really long time to trust him. I just wasn't sure. I didn't want to... I didn't want to like him. You know what? Because when I liked Ricky last week, he got fucking <laughs> killed with a can of paint to the face. So I decided this week, no getting attached to any characters. Right. I mean, (laughs) I just think he's refreshing. I think that's what it is. And I also just appreciate the things that he says where he is like, Riley, are you okay? And she's just like, kind of gives a look of like, do I look okay? And he's just like, is there something I can do to help you? How can I help you? He is not taking on a feeling of masculinity that Nate does 
where he's like, I need to protect my girl and he needs to feel like he has this ownership or this sovereignty over his girlfriend. He is really just being like, I see that there's a problem here. Is there something I can do? I just liked the way that Landon performed his masculinity because it did not create a hierarchy between him and Riley. It created an equitable relationship where he is even still asking consent every sense of the way. He was like, can I help you? Not what am I going to do for you? Benissimo. I think that's the right Italian word to say. Yeah. That was great. I That was so well said. And also I love how like this is a little bit of a rant, but I remember like when active consent, affirmative consent started to become something that was more taught in health classes and more on the front lines of sex education and discussion about sex. And I remember hearing a lot of backlash about that. Like, how can you ask consent every step of the way? How can you do that? Like, what about spontaneity? Blah, blah, blah. It's not sexy to ask. But like, literally yeah. like I love in this moment that we see it's a part of a normal conversation consent is a part of any normal conversation any normal interaction so yeah i like seeing that here as well and again landon goes to bat for riley because she's like you really want to help me it cuts away from them for a second and it cuts back to chris who is in the car she is driving through campus and she stops at in front of the other sorority house where una and some of the other sisters in a different sorority all come running toward her car mm-hmm. and I wrote down that I appreciated the open the door humor because they all try to open her car door. And it's like when you're in a relationship and there's that like meme or that joke that goes around when a guy gets in a car and the girl tries to open the car door too fast. To me, there was just something so funny about like this other girl (laughs) trying to open her car door and being like, can you open the door? Like there's like, I don't know what that just made me laugh. I don't know if it's just like super realistic or just Uh trying to play again, trying to play on a stereotype. Mm -hmm. But Chris is like, is it happening to you guys too? And they're like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're all regrouping and they're all sharing. And then it cuts away from them and it cuts back to Landon and Riley and Landon has found a way into the house somehow. So he lets himself in and discovers that his mixer that he let them use for the talent show has been trashed. And I'm assuming because Riley had asked Chris to do this for her earlier that she asks Landon to do to make some sort of distraction. So he starts freaking out about this mixer. He's, you know, making a scene about it, throwing things against the wall, yeah, breaking things, whatever. And so then, of course, it leads a bunch of the guys who are wearing cloaks out into this living space. So then my Miley. Miley Cyrus makes her way inside that. Riley makes her way inside the house. And pretty shortly after arriving, she goes to the room where the bust is. Yes. Before Mm -hmm. she gets to the bust. There's a weird moment when the fraternity brothers are confronting Landon and they hear that high pitched noise again. And it seems to be affecting Landon because they ask him, have you ever considered Pledging. pledging, rushing or whatever? And then we hear that high-pitched sound. So we can get a sense that Landon is going to be manipulated somehow. Then that's when Riley makes her way to the bus room. Yes. I believe it's either Brian or Phil is the one that's speaking to Landon. And Landon's like succumbing to his headache. And he's like bent over and and a lot of pain. And he's just like, oh, you have a headache? It's just the founder drawing out your true alpha. Ew, like, what? (laughs) 
So we don't really see what happens there. But yes, Riley is in search of the bust and she finds it and she's about to like destroy the bust because we are in the school of thought of the faculty mm-hmm. where if you destroy the thing that has been distributing all of the harm, then it brings everybody else back to normal. But she hears Helena crying somewhere in the house and screaming for help. So she goes to her and shortly finds out oh she sees helena tied to a table she goes to her and pretty much right away after riley gets to helena we see phil come in the room and helena have a smile across her face and we realize it's been a trap and helena's just been chilling in the fraternity house the whole time which i thought was a really stupid plot twist i believe with some of the things that comes later it's believable everything that comes before it no there isn't enough motive no for Helena to really be turning on her sisters like this. No. And like Phil, because the only thing that you can assume is I guess Helena had some kind of like romantic connection with Phil and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And she would have chosen him. But like the scene where he was trying to take advantage of her, Helena was so clearly uncomfortable. Like Phil was so clearly being way too aggressive and forward. Like there was nothing about that scene where I was like, oh, there was nothing. Like I just felt like that scene would have made her be completely turned off to him and she was and there was even a conversation that riley had with helena afterwards because again riley is helena's big so she's really being supportive and helena's like i just feel so stupid i just thought he was cute and yeah it really does show that she thought that that encounter was going to go a different way which is why in this scene i thought helena was possessed i thought that she was like under some level of mind control herself. But again, going back to that lore conversation, like you said, like, where is the lore of ladies getting possessed here? That could very well exist. And you're right. She did seem to be acting in a way that was uncharacteristic for her. So, but how? But when? We, we never got any indication of how that screeching or that black liquid would affect a girl. Yeah, so that's what I was kind of keeping a lookout for when Riley wakes up. She's tied to a chair in the initiation room and you see that Landon has been incapacitated. He has the symbol with the black liquid on his forehead, which kind of indicates that he has been initiated as well. And out from around the corner comes Professor Gelson in a robe. And I just wrote down, Professor running the show, no shit. Because... (laughs) There was nothing to presume that he wasn't. There was no evidence that he was not also a part of what the fuck was going on. Yeah, it was pretty obvious. He reveals that when the boys took the founder's bust from the student union and brought it into the founder's fraternity, they discovered a secret inside. A set of instructions left by Calvin Hawthorne that if they followed, they could restore themselves to power. Yes, because Isn't that weird. Yeah, because apparently Calvin foresaw the tyranny of women to dethrone men as the true agency of survival. So he put in this black magic where if you read the incantations, it would possess the men with the spirit of Calvin Hawthorne to punish women that step out of line. That is the lore. Yeah, and I guess the black liquid that seeps from the eyes of the bust is what gives them that power through that ceremony. 
We also see when Riley comes to that there is sort of a tray of all of these trinkets, which we realize are, I guess, maybe idols or connections to the women that have been killed so far. So we see that diva cup that went missing before. We see Riley's comb that she had given to Marty. We see a couple different trinkets that we have heard about or seen representing the girls that have been going missing. And there's this moment where I think Brian, is Brian talking to her at this point? He's saying, you know, Riley, just come to the bad side. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. But he's basically saying, just submit, take your place as a woman. And then Marty starts trying to plead with Riley, like, take your place as a woman. So Helena. Oh, sorry. Helena. I think Helena's rhetoric here is not out of complete question as to what I imagine a lot of women who voted for Trump think or women who might have grown up in very conservative circles or heavily patriarchal religious households might think is true, where she's saying things like, I'm helping women. Just because our place is behind men doesn't mean that we don't have a place. I'm just trying to help you be a good woman. So a lot of this internalized misogyny that Helena is possessing and Brian, I think, does spell out like, Helena was spared because she was good. She didn't step mm-hmm. out of line. And it is defined that step out of line was the people that signed the petition against Professor Gelson. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Then Riley stays quiet. She doesn't seem like she's going to give in. And then, of course, a comment is made, well, we're going to show you our power, which this part was I didn't really fucking understand this either. Like, what the hell? This is the stupidest. It's really dumb. Part of the fucking (laughs) film. This is where. Oh, I'm ready. This is where I'm summoning the it follows pool scene as how infuriating this scene was because they introduce the idea of you will bow to our king. Our king will show you the way. So a slightly bulkier masked person in a cloak (laughs) comes stomping in, just walking by. And he walks up to Helena and Helena's like, babe. And it's like, so wait, is this Phil? No, Phil's right fucking there. Mm -hmm. And that's who she's been romantically involved in. So why is King babe? No, I think she's, I think she's like looking to Phil like babe as this Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Maybe. But still fucking dumb because she's doing everything she was told to do. And they're trying to use this as something to get Riley to do what they want her to do. But then this slightly bulkier, slightly taller being just snaps Helena's neck. And she looks to the tray and sees that all of a sudden her necklace is on the tray. And she looks to Phil and Phil's just kind of like, it's means to an end or something. Like, I forget what he says, but pretty much says, like, this is necessary. And yeah king just fucking snaps helena's neck and she falls over dying and her last words was i did everything i was supposed to do Mm. which i think is really obviously very potent to women who might not feel as though they have their level of agency or their level of agency sits with the men that they are associated with whether it's their father or their brother or their husband whatever but king (laughs) is so fucking dumb because spoiler alert we never fucking find out who the king is yeah i don't really understand that i don't understand that i guess i would have thought that professor gelson would have been i guess king or whatever just because he's like the elder guy he's wearing that purple robe as opposed to the red one or whatever vice versa and king is wearing a black robe i don't know what the deal is like is this supposed to be calvin hawthorne 
like like incarnate. incarnate. But they don't fucking say that. You're going to call him the founder the entire movie, but then you're going to come across with King? Like, what the fuck? So it gets even weirder, y'all. Well, actually, this part's actually kind of cool. So Brian is really intimidating Riley, and Riley is still tied up. She's still refusing to bow, still refusing to submit. And there are parallels being drawn between this moment happening now between Riley and Brian and the assault that we saw previous flashbacks to, which we start seeing flashbacks to again. Yes. And I thought this was pretty telling and powerful. He says, see no evil boys and all of the boys turn and face the wall. And I think obviously that's meant to really talk about the lack of accountability that these men hold with each other when they know that their brothers or their, mm. their fellow guy is doing something fucked up. They just put their head in the sand and they so don't. Well said. It's harder for men to hold each other accountable for things they know are fucked up. And... I think at this point, Brian had freed Riley from her restraints. But yeah, he is holding her by the wrist. That is very reminiscent of what's Mm -hmm. going on. But then the The door door opens. (laughs) And the girls attack. Yeah, they come in squad deep. So there's about, I think, six of them. Chris and the other girls that she picked up in her car from the sorority, they have arrived. They have come to defend the sisterhood. And so then this huge fight scene breaks out, which is pretty cool. The action sequence. And we see Riley also kind of break free and she beats the crap out of Brian. Yeah, there's a lot of fights happening around them. And I did appreciate, again, the use of weaponry. There's some pepper spray. There's a Mm -hmm. taser. So again, just really talking about rape culture and the means of defenses that women typically turn to. And Ryan is pinning Riley and there's a lot of flashbacks to her assault. But then I think she looks over and sees that Chris is being beaten up and Chris is kind of like her fighter, her person. So I don't know. I didn't know how to read this as she finally was like embodying the strength that Chris wanted her to or was it her wanting to protect her sisters gave her the strength to flip Brian over and top him I don't really know but either way she overpowers Brian she makes a run for the bust Professor Gelson tries to say like you know without men there are no women a bunch of misogynistic shit and she smashes the bust but then the fight continues and that's when I realized that only the pledges were possessed. Mm-hmm. Phil and Brian and Professor Gelson were really believing all of this, which mm-hmm. I think, again, also speaks to college students go in very impressionable, very tabula rasa. Depending on who they align themselves with is kind of going to determine who they are. And there is dialogue, too, before all the fight happens where Professor Gelson's like, these boys are going to graduate, become members of Congress, become lawyers, become doctors, and they're going to reset the wrong that feminism unleashed on society. But it really is talking about the potential for men. And I'm saying men here just because that's what you can say women, too, because of sorority women. But in this case... The ability, because of the power that men hold in this society, based on these ideals being released into society and the further harm that is caused by that, mm-hmm. this brainwashing or this indoctrination, which I'm not equating to fraternity sorority life, I'm equating to this cult <laughs> in the movie, has the potential to really like cause harm. But again, once you kind of take away the head of the person that is professing negativity, people really will kind of look in hindsight and be like, I wasn't down for that. 
You know? This can also harken back to our conversation from the faculty where we talked about the education system and fraternities and sororities are a part of the education system. They're a part of university life and that culture that has been established there. And like you said, when people come into college in many ways, they are blank slates or at least still impressionable enough to be able to change their minds. These systems in place, like they do have these sort of inherently misogynistic or problematic, you know, list the ways philosophies. And I think we kind of see that here, obviously, in a exaggerated way. And Shay just pointed to my notes where we know when the bust falls and breaks, I wrote bus gets busted. That's my pun. That's my pun. I told you not to get excited. (laughs) I love it. The bus gets busted and the girls fight their way out of the room. Professor Gelson gets set on fire. It's great. And then the fire erupts and I guess becomes more flammable with this black liquid. And the girls are able to, with the fraternity paddles, lock all of the fraternity men in the burning room as all of the girls plus Landon, who is apologetic as ever, escape to the front lawn. (laughs) Yeah, yes. And then that's how it ends. We kind of have first a look of satisfaction on Riley's face, but then it sort of diminishes into something that's more of uh, like, oh, shit, now I'm going to have to manage this trauma type thing. And then the movie is over. Yeah, it Um, wasn't really a satisfying ending. No, it wasn't. And I, I did feel like it left me with a lot of questions, a lot of inconsistencies. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I did some research because I know based off of what you told me that this movie was not loved by the public. And so I kind of wanted to get a look at why. And one of the articles I found was by Logan Ashley. And he writes a review titled, What the Hell Happened with the New Black Christmas? (laughs) He focuses on a lot of different things, specifically the representations of feminism in this movie and sexual assault. So since we were just talking about that scene with Riley and Brian, where we're kind of like back at that, the encounter in the fraternity room that resembles so much the flashback to the sexual assault we get a few times in the movie. So Logan Ashley comments on this. He writes, because during this climactic final battle, she's put into a similar position with Brian as she was during her rape. At this time, because she's fighting the system, she's able to get Brian off of her and win the battle, which creates this weird implication that she is now too strong to be raped, either in a metaphorical or literal sense, because strong feminists are capable of defeating any man who tries to lay a hand on her. It creates this sense and that like her defeating Brian, overpowering him was kind of like a choice. She just had to like find it in her to fight him off. I can see that. It depends what you're looking at it as. Is it that she is too strong to be assaulted or is that she has agency over her autonomy of her body and her own trauma and recovery? Like, is it proactive or retroactive? I originally watching that thought it was empowering, but reading that I thought was an interesting point because even when I watched the movie, regardless of thinking it was empowering, I was like, there's no way she'd be able to do that. Brian is like way bigger than her physically. She can't like, yeah, it's very unlikely that she can just get up without help from somebody else. I mean, he has her in a very compromising position. I mean, she doesn't really have a lot of strength to give because of the way her body is being held down. I would appreciate if there was some sort of loosely placed self-defense class 
or <sighs> something that comes back where she's able to use what she learned the, or, lear- what she learned or mm-hmm. use the magic comb to stab him in the eye or something yeah. like that but I do see the critique in the method of how she was able to overpower him because it didn't offer any significance besides the positionality being significant to her right. trauma And especially because that reoccurring theme throughout the movie perpetuated by Chris's character where she's saying, thought you were a fighter, you used to be a fighter, be a fighter, be a fighter. At least I didn't disappear like you. And so it really kind of is shrouded in this whole, oh, just make the choice. It's almost like this idea of toxic optimism. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I'm sure there's a better term for it. But a way where people think that you can good vibes the shit out (sighs) of anything or good vibes away anything. And I think that's maybe what I'm missing about this, too, because if you were going to make it a redemption arc, I kind of want to see a little bit more of Riley's pain because I think all we really see is okay yeah maybe in the three years ago since it happened she doesn't go on stage and sing anymore and is a little more quiet but then the bulk of her stuff only resurfaces when Brian's back in town but I would have liked to see it come out with Landon I would have liked to see it happen maybe one year later instead of three years later Mm. Would she have still been in the sorority? Would she still be enrolled in the university? Would she still have these close connections with her friends? I don't know. And that's not, I'm not trying to say that these journeys are linear or that these journeys can be placed on a certain pathway that makes a narrative sense. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is if you're going to make this story about Riley taking her agency back from her abuser, then I kind of want to see the impact of the abuse outside of the characterization that we got from the beginning, mm-hmm. which quiet, nice, supportive, introvert. meek, <laughs> introvert, sorority sister. But we're not seeing who she was before that. So everything of where, okay, you used to get up and sing on stage at bars is all hearsay. Mm-hmm. Show me before then or yeah. show me the during, but you're only showing me the slightly before and after but so it's not impactful i think because there were so many characters there just wasn't enough time yeah i could have done with maybe three less sorority sisters or have them there but really don't give them an important role i mean if i think about like the time spent kind of exploring the other sorority like i don't really know if that really needed to happen as much like i don't know whatever i mean i'm not a creative director i don't know anything our creative people made their choices but I don't know. It just didn't really match up for me. But I also think that it's significant when you're talking about the original 1974 Black Christmas because it is focused, from what I understand, on a singular sorority, also four or five girls in it. And obviously, that movie's from 74. That's not to say that these topics wouldn't have been relevant back then, but I don't think mass media was being produced around topics surrounding the Me Too movement. And so I actually have a quote about this, too. Oh, OK, go ahead. So some of the critiques about this 2019 film is that it's like almost overtly feminist, like cartoony to a sense. It relies a lot on sort of like hot button words like white masculinity, the patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't really like support what it's saying with its characterizations. Mm. It's very sort of like despite sort of preaching like feminist, holistic culture, it really kind of falls back on those stereotypes we talked about. 
Logan Ashley also writes in his review comparing the two versions, the 1974 and 2019 versions. I feel the need to defend the original film a little here because so much of the marketing for the 2019 adaption, so many reviews touted as a, quote, feminist update. These girls aren't, quote, willing victims. They're liberated badasses who can fight off the patriarchy and the stalker all at once. They aren't like the girls of the original film. But I would really argue that the original Black Christmas is incredibly feminist, undeniably so in the context of the time it was released. In January of 1973, the decision in regards to the Supreme Court case Roe versus Wade was heard, which gave protection to women seeking an abortion. Black Christmas was released in late 1974, and abortion is a prominent discussion point of the film. So even though in that 1974 film we didn't have the Me Too movement, we still had this really significant development in feminism and in women's bodily autonomy, and the film addresses that as well. So it might not be quote-unquote feminist to match our 2020 standards, but it really kind of made waves in a lot of other ways that were more prevalent at that time in what was going on in popular culture. Yeah, in terms of like where they relate, things happen in a sorority house, and that's about all these two movies have in common. Mm -hmm. You know, in the original, there is a singular stalker type that is hunting the girls down one by one. And we don't even really get a resolution as to who that person is at the end of the movie. But yeah, a lot of the major plot points or a lot of the major contentions is between the main girl and her boyfriend. And she is pregnant. She wants an abortion. He does not want her to get an abortion. And that makes him public enemy number one and Mm -hmm. suspect number one for her sorority sisters going missing, especially due to the amount of support that they're giving her. I think that's what made folks maybe as unwilling to embrace this one because it was trying to harken back on such a classic film. So much so that, you know, we covered Halloween, which is considered one of the first slashers. This came four years before it. This Mm -hmm. is actually one of the first modern slashers or slashers as we know it ever but this one was a canadian film so Mm -hmm. halloween gets a lot of the acclaim because it was the first american where Mm -hmm. this is a canadian film but yeah i find that so interesting the legacy that this movie builds but the impact that i believe that this black christmas really tried to be a get out and it tried doing too much at once i think i agree that's a good way to say it do you have any final thoughts about the film i feel like we we had a lot of thoughts about the film I don't hate the film. I think, again, I think it just isn't sure of what it wants to be. Mm. I don't think it's not worth the watch, but you get this quippiness in the beginning with this humor around like the diva cups and Mm -hmm. the mean girls ask dance. But then that humor doesn't really get revisited. It stops being funny along the way. And then it wants to be this social commentary Mm. about Me Too and things of that nature. But then again, it gets a little too obvious. It gets too on the nose. It says everything it wants to do. It doesn't show us what it wants to do. Exactly. And that's very true with like the casting. This isn't a very diverse cast at all, both with race, with gender representation. Like have nobody who even looks for a second like they might be queer. Not that queer looks a certain way, but like no one identifies as queer in the film at all. Yeah. Everyone is straight. I'm going to guess the cat girl is queer. Yeah, but we don't even know that. She so even though it's like making it's trying to make social commentary, it's only making a very like a one-sided social commentary, but at the same time pretending that it's making this really vast broad social commentary that it's not accomplishing. I mean, I still think 
in terms of what we came into it looking for with people getting killed with icicles Mm -hmm. and Christmas lights and, again, just embodying the vibe of being on a college campus around Christmas time. I think the moments that I enjoyed this movie the most were when these women were just being in community with Mm, each other, even mm -hmm. when they were fighting and even when there was like disagreement and things of that nature. I think it does really well of showing how imperfect friendship between women can be, Mm. but how at the end, how supportive it can be. Because again, like Chris came back for her. She didn't have to Mm -hmm. do that, you know, Mm -hmm. but even though there was this... (laughs) abandoned storyline of Riley being an orphan there really was a really strong sense of solidarity where even if that other sorority they didn't need to be another sorority I kind of like that they were yeah because they were still showing up for each other because Mm -hmm. I don't want to say there was a common enemy but there needed people needed to show up for Riley and Mm -hmm. they did yeah so that I think I appreciate that I liked it on the whole. I did like the kind of like mystical elements, even though kind of like we said, not maybe executed in the best way, but I did kind of like that. I thought that was an interesting twist. And I thought that the story had a lot of potential. And I think it was an interesting idea to think about. It definitely kept me engaged. I will say I was engaged the whole time I was watching the movie. And I feel good for having another quote unquote horror movie under your belt, under my belt, even though this might not be the most terrifying. I mean, I did it. Next week's will be a little more terrifying. I'm so scared. I know this is host, right? This is host. So this is a <laughs> Shutter exclusive. So get that free trial if you want to watch it with us. But if you're so fucking sick of Zoom by now, wait for a horror movie that was filmed entirely during the coronavirus pandemic, entirely filmed on Zoom. And this has supernatural elements, correct? There's a seance that goes wrong. Look, look, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this. I think I'm going to cry. I have a feeling. I think I'm going to cry, but I'll do it. I'm going to do it. You know, just like Chris and folks showed up for Riley, I'm going to show up for you here. Oh my God. I'm going to support you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks for listening, y'all. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com or the same handle on Instagram. Again, thehorrors with a W podcast. And we would love to get the follow. We would love to get the messages. Please also, if you're listening, make sure you comment, subscribe, review. All of those things are very important to us. We always want to get your feedback. And yeah, thanks again for listening. Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Adios. Adios.